Chelsea Fairless, and welcome back to another episode of the Every Outfit Podcast. Chelsea, how the hell are you? I haven't seen you in a week. I'm good. Do you notice my tan? Yes. That didn't sound convincing. I have a tan. I have a glow. I was in Hawaii being the parasitic freelancer that I am. I tagged along on my wife's work trip, so it was very nice, restorative. Well, it seems like it's take your wife to work week because Tad is here. She's here. She's our audience, but you actually want to like join the app? Mm, I'll jump in if I feel compelled. Okay. <laughs> well, I rarely get Tad's side of these stories. Tad, how was Hawaii? Um, ha- Hawaii was good, right? I mean, you had a couple minor mental (laughs) breakdowns, but other than that... I think something was going on with the moon. Yeah, it's got to be like a lunar situation. Oh, that's what it was. Uh, Yeah, I did get an update about a a room change. Okay. (laughs) She had a white lotus moment. Wait, is this Patreon or normal? This is not paywall. Well, then I'll I'll keep my stories to myself. (laughs) Although I feel like at some point we will get to that where it's like censored for main feed, but for the VIPs, it's like, here's the real story that happened. Look, this bitch just needed an ocean view. I mean, sue me. (laughs) So how was the crazy apocalyptic storm that we missed? I know. You guys were enjoying Hawaii, and I was like, do I tell them that maybe their house has washed away because your area got hit really, really badly? But from what I understand, your house is still standing. The house is standing. Our neighbors got fucked, though. And our street is like, it's like an active mudslide, basically. Mulholland is closed. For those who don't live in Los Angeles, Mulholland is a main thoroughfare. The name of David Lynch's most famous film, probably Mulholland Drive. I think Blue Velvet is his most famous film. Just All right, agreed to disagree. <laughs> anyway. Ted's like, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> what I care about is that I can't take Mulholland anymore because it is closed once again when it rained last year. That happened. What is different from last year is that Mulholland is closed because of the house that is at the top of the street of where I grew up. At the top of where I grew up is an estate that used to be owned by the country musician Glenn Campbell. Wait, was this the surreal life house? Yes. So when I was an adolescent, some reality show producer bought that house and then if you if you ever watch VH1 in 2003 or 2004, you'll notice that like Surreal Life, Rock of Love 2, I Love New York, they all look like the same house redressed. It's because it was this house. And since that time, it has been unoccupied. And that is what caused the mudslide that closed Mulholland. What, the house just like slid down the hill? The land has not been maintained in almost 20 years. How do you know so much about everything? <laughs> because I literally, Well, you know that we're real estate weirdos. This is all my mom and I talked about last week because on top of the Glen Campbell estate is a radio tower that is also unoccupied. So it was like a double mudslide. It's like a house on top of a house that has not been maintained in 20 years. And that is what fucked Mulholland this time. So you're telling me that the house that Flava Flav and Brigitte Nielsen fucked in is now destroyed? You know, it's supposed to rain again. So early next week, that might be the case. Yes. Wow. Well, your house was spared, though. Our house is fine. 
not to out when we record, but last night was Valentine's Day. Yes, it was. How was your Valentine's Day with Paul? Because have you even had one together at this point? Because wasn't he gone last year? Yes, he moved to LA almost a year ago, which would explain this year's Valentine's Day plans, which is we've just elected to celebrate Valentine's Day the Saturday after Valentine's Day, because that's what we did last year. And honestly, we have so much shit going on this year that we got in the car yesterday and I just looked at him and I was like, you just want to like fully postpone Valentine's Day. Like no flowers, no cards. There's just too much going on. That makes me sad though. It's okay. We're going to have a great Saturday. I know. But like, I think the fun thing about Valentine's Day is it does happen like midweek. It's something that you can do like not on the weekends for once. Although I do think this is a cute tradition. I do. Also, I don't think next year will be like this, but we're going to have to move out of this house in a couple of weeks. Our other house isn't ready. We are in the middle of writing a live show. He's on a deadline. This couple of weeks is truly insane. But we did celebrate. Yeah, you. I saw you were walking side to side today. <laughs> <laughs> Yeehaw. You know what says not celebrating Valentine's Day? Getting Indian takeout and watching a random episode of season one of True Detective. Okay, that's just weird. I would ask what you guys did, but I did see through Instagram stories. It was very cute. Yeah, Tat turned our house into a boys to men music video, (laughs) essentially. I came home from my lash appointment to the sound of R&B and like the world's longest trail of rose petals. Where did you get all these rose petals? The flower market. Wait, you drove downtown to the flower market? I mean, the things you do for love. She set up a little cheese plate, heart-shaped brie. I was very impressed by 10,000 candles. I was like, where the fuck did these candles come from? (laughs) From our emergency earthquake kit downstairs. (laughs) Nice. I tried to buy them at pavilions. They were sold out. Then I tried to get them delivered on Postmates the guy shows up with no candles did he have other things or he's yeah, just like, like a red sorry onion and we made pizza too so there was some pizza ingredients in the shapes of love hearts yes we did she got balloons it was literally it was so over the top it was like being in a rom-com truly which from anyone else I think this might freak me out right from you it's actually just so cute <laughs> Moving on, because we took a week off, we pre-recorded an episode, and what a week of cultural events that we missed. I was shocked to learn you went to a Super Bowl party? Well, to be fair, it was like four people. And one of them is pregnant. I don't know what that has well, to do wasn't. with anything. It wasn't, no one was turning up. There was one straight man, so. And mostly Aussies? Yeah. I like watching the Super Bowl. I feel left out when I don't watch it. I don't like football. But, you know, the ads, the halftime show, the eating chicken wings and dip and all of that shit speaks to me. I mean, you didn't watch the football part at all. You were on your phone until the ads and then you get off Okay, well, the thing is, football is so boring because I sit there and I just want to watch people play the game. But what happens is that someone runs for two yards and gets tackled. And then we see a replay of that like five times. And then they start again and someone runs for two more yards until eventually hours later, someone gets a touchdown. I just want to see one person sprint. This was a pretty boring game. Should we talk about the most important thing to come out of the Super Bowl, which was Beyonce announced her new album through a Verizon commercial? The commercial which featured Tony Hale, who was in Veep, he's also the photographer's assistant in the episode of Sex and the City where Samantha's taking the nude portraits. 
Oh. Yeah. I never put that together. So the commercial was Beyonce attempting to break the internet by recreating her baseball bat look from Lemonade, becoming Barbay. Why did the way you said that trigger me? I don't know why. It's very fair. And then at the end of the commercial, she quickly says, okay, drop the new music, which was sort of like, wait, wait, what? what's happening? Is there new music? And there was, in fact, new music. This is why Chell wasn't watching the game. She had to refresh her uh, title app to be like, (laughs) is it there? Is it there? Is it there? Sing it for them, Chell. I wasn't that desperate. I am not singing it. I'm not singing it. Well, what do you think of the actual songs? Because we got two songs. We got Texas Hold'em and 16 Carriages. Both country songs, both from an album that is presumably country. I loved it. See, 16 Carriages didn't really hit for me, but maybe I haven't listened to it enough. I like Texas Hold'em, though. Right. That's a bop. And I'm really happy that the boys that work at Flaming Saddles have something new and exciting to dance to. I mean, I guess the ad was also to promote Verizon's super fast 5G, which is not what anyone took away from that ad. No, absolutely not. I hate all the cell phone companies equally. No form of advertising will ever change that. Did you see that many people thought that the commercial was going to announce Beyonce's residency in the sphere? Well, that was the rumor, right? Yeah. And there was a lot of sphere happening at the Super Bowl. It's fair enough, but like the sphere is hemorrhaging money. Like they don't have Beyonce residency money. Well, I still hope that that's on the horizon. I thought it was supposed to be Miley Cyrus. Tat, do you have any intel? No, that'd be great. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think she has intel, guys. This announcement also came with a teaser for the album directed by Nadia Lee Cohen that was very cute. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Because that was my first interface with the music as I went to Beyonce's Instagram and I saw the short of this older man in a gray suit and a red hat walking in a desert landscape to come across a Beyonce billboard promoting Texas Hold'em. I would say between that visual and the image, the cover art, I believe, for 16 Carriages, it's safe to say that Nadia Lee Cohen's inspiration was the Vim Vendors film Paris, Texas. Absolutely. She... Definitely had that bob. Speaking of which, do you still have that sweater? I do. Because once we were at like, what was it, a Mango or a Zara or something like that? I think it might even be have been an Express. And we saw this like magenta fluffy sweater and we were like, that's the Paris, Texas sweater. You have to buy that yeah. and do the full Halloween costume. But I've yet to see that. All right. Well, this year we will. I don't know if you also saw the visuals for Texas Hold'em, but I need to know who Beyonce's waxer is, like where <laughs> she's getting lasered, because that was crazy. Yeah, that was crazy. It looks like just one of those disposable um, stick-on underwear. You know, it doesn't have the sides. Absolutely. (laughs) A perspective from a stylist. No, it does. It does. It was also giving Nomi Malone, like at the beginning of Showgirls as well. For sure. Also the YouTube video for Texas Hold'em, the way she's dressed does feel very Tarantino. And the fact that she was driving the cab in that Nadia Lee Cohen promo reminded me of the telephone video with Lady Gaga. So is Joanne coming back for this (laughs) album? And people also felt that that might be the case because Lady Gaga was also at the Super Bowl. Who wasn't at the Super Bowl? Us. I think it was just us. It feels like the divas really 
dominated the Super Bowl. Like no one really cared about the game because it was all like Taylor Swift. It was Ariana and Cynthia Erivo. The Wicked trailer dropped. What did you think? Sure. Yeah, that's my thoughts exactly. From what I understand, it's supposed to be a musical. I guess we're continuing this trend to not make musical films look like musicals. Because otherwise I won't go and see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is, but it's fucking wicked. Like it's actually crazy. And I will confess, I have never seen Wicked, despite loving The Wizard of Oz, despite loving Broadway. But I know those songs. And it's just weird that none of that was in the trailer. Also, I'm sorry, I hate CGI fantasy worlds. I loved Barbie because the sets were inspired by The Wizard of Oz. There was a practicality in those. What's weird is that in the set photos from the Wicked shoot, there are practical sets. So it was surprising to see how much CGI was going on. Also, didn't know that Jeff Goldblum is the wizard. Wait, what? Isn't he the Wizard of Oz? That totally went over my head. I didn't even recognize him. Did he have like a weird hat or something? Yeah. I don't know. I'm obviously going to see this film, not on Thanksgiving Day, but shortly thereafter. Well, I'm such an idiot. I was like, oh, it's cool that if you're in a Super Bowl commercial, you just get to go to the Super Bowl. And I'm like, oh, wait, no. All the corporate entities that bought commercials just like bought tickets so that Jeff Goldblum could be there. Uh, Ariana Grande could be there. Yeah. What were your thoughts on Gaga's makeup? I thought it was fun. Like, yeah, she looks like a freak, but this is Lady Gaga. That's what she does. It's basically, her eye makeup that she did when she performed at the Super Bowl. Yeah. Okay. I mean, while I would love to discuss other Super Bowl commercials, I feel like we buried the lead enough. Is it time to talk about Taylor Swift? Sure. So Taylor Swift made it back in time for the Super Bowl. I mean, the way that people were tracking this, like, I don't know. She's got 33 hours to get here. Will she be able to make this 19-hour flight from Japan to LA? <laughs> it's like, yeah, she has a fucking <laughs> private jet. Also, even if she flew commercial with layovers, she still would have made it. Why <laughs> Why do we have like CNN breaking news updates about this? I know. I literally have been getting Daily Mail push notifications. <laughs> that's like, Taylor Swift touches down at LAX. <laughs> Taylor Swift touches down in Vegas. Taylor Swift leaves Vegas. Taylor Swift touches down in Melbourne. I've never seen a Hollywood romance appear more like badly written fanfic than this relationship. And I do not mean that in a bad way. It's like when you watch Notting Hill and at the end, Hugh Grant confesses his love for Julia Roberts at her own press conference. And you're like, well, that would never happen in real life, but it might actually happen with Travis Kelsey and Taylor <laughs> Swift. Like he might propose to her in the middle of a concert. Yeah, I wouldn't put that past him. I was a little turned off by some of his behavior. Like obviously he's a great football player, but I don't know, the singing Viva Las Vegas, the drunk video of him at the parade from yesterday where the shooting happened. Like all of this is just kind of giving me the ick. Oh, Tats left us, by the way. Bye. <laughs> it wasn't just a singing Viva Las Vegas. It was an audience participation Viva Las Vegas. And then it just cut to 
Taylor. And I just felt that that meme of like, this is your man. That's him. I feel like he was this close to having a Howard Dean moment that we all just wouldn't have been able to recover from. Well, where does this relationship go? Like they have to get married. An entire nation has been involved in their courtship. I know they really should televise the wedding. Like it's a royal wedding. That's what I was going to say. Like it has to be a televised wedding. Yeah. It could be on pay-per-view. I'll pay $89.99 to watch that shit. Also, because it's been a minute since we recorded a pop culture episode, we have not talked about the Grammys. We have not talked about the unveiling of the Tortured Poets Department, which is like the most insane album title I think she's ever had. And maybe the most insane rollout, because what was the thought process? It was one of two things. Oh, I know I'm going to win, so I'm going to announce during one of my acceptance speeches, or I'm not going to win, but I'm going to announce this anyway to pull focus. Is it just me, or is there something about this title? Like, I cannot remember it to save my life. If I didn't have it written down in a Google Doc right now, I wouldn't know what it was. Because in my head, I'm like, wait, is it the... Dead Poet Society? Is it the Mariner's apartment complex? Like it's something somewhere in there. The Tortured Poet Society would make a lot more sense. So it was quickly figured out that her ex, Joe Alwyn, has a group chat with Paul Mescal, who is Phoebe Bridger's ex, called the Tortured Man's Club. This was discovered in a video- Men's Club or Man's Club? Uh, I got tortured man club. Okay, man club. So not plural. No, not plural. But it's with the two of them and Andrew Scott because one would imagine they play tortured men. I would love to see that group chat blowing up about this. Can you imagine? It's doubtful that it is a coincidence because she also revealed the track list, which has songs like My Boy Only Breaks His Favorite Toys, so Long London, which is seemingly a bookend to Lover's London Boy. Yeah, we also have the smallest man who ever lived. <laughs> okay, she might as well have just made a song that's Joe Alwyn cheated on me. Is that what we think it is? Well, that's a rumor. Because did you not hear about this Lime Scooter debacle? Sorry, Chell, I'm not on that side <laughs> of the internet. <laughs> There's a rumor that he hooked up with One of his co-stars, I believe, but someone who's relatively unfamous. Well, also, I think it's very telling that all of Taylor's friends unfollowed him on Instagram, which is not something that one would do in an amicable breakup. Right. Are you unfollowing me, Lauren? Am I unfollowing you? Yeah, Chell and I break up. No, because that's childish. (laughs) I agree. It's like... You would just mute her. No, you would have her keep following me so you could see what I was up to. Yeah, but I would mute you so I don't get the the updates for sure. This 180 that Taylor Swift has done from, what, four albums that she made while she was with Joe Alwyn of like, oh, it seems that she's matured. She's turned her back on fame. She's really locked down with this guy. And now it's like, actually, no, I was pretending to be someone else for this motherfucker. Like, let's do it. I got to date a quarterback and we got to kiss in front of 100 million people. That's my energy. Yeah. No, I love that for her. Also, what do we think this Clara Bow song is about? Clara Bow, for those who don't know, is a very famous silent film actress. She is. Oh, don't bring up silent films around Tat. (laughs) 
Have you told that story? Do you want that story to be publicly known? <laughs> I mean, I'm a dumb bitch. Everyone knows. We've established you are book dumb. You're not a dumb person. <laughs> Street smart I am. Look, Tat did not know what a silent film was until a few years ago. We were out to dinner with my friend Kate, who is the programmer of the Melbourne Film Festival, and she brought up a silent film, and Tat was like, wait, what? And I kicked me under the table. And I kicked her under the table, which wasn't a nice thing to do. So I just shut the fuck up and knew my place. And then like months later, she brought it up when we were waiting in line for coffee at, where the fuck were we? The Oaks. She was like, who the fuck even knows what a silent film is? And then she went and asked the guy standing next to us. He's like, do you know what a silent film is? He was like, yeah. Because it's all, of course, like screenwriters. It was like a scene out of a movie. Literally, the whole cafe was like, you don't know what yeah. And then she's like, name one silent film. And he's like, I don't know, Metropolis? And then she keeps going down everyone. And they're like, I don't know, the cabinet of Dr. Calgary? Until like every silent film has been named. And she's just been like sh- publicly shamed. You were truly the Oaks for those who don't live in Los Angeles. You were on, that is the preferred coffee shop of like Robert Pattinson. Like you were on the corner of screenwriter and like IFC. <laughs> um, okay, Clara Bow, another way to put it, Tat, was the first it girl. And she came up in the world of silent films, which believe it or not, do exist. And she was famously in one called It, which is where the term it girl originated from because she was the it girl of the 1920s. Right. And so I thought what this song could be about is because many silent film actors had weird ass voices. So when it went over to talkies, they didn't make it. It is a big plot point of the Damien Chazelle film Babylon if you have three hours to spend watching that movie. So I thought that Clara Bow didn't have a successful career in the talkies and maybe that's what the song is about of like, I didn't have a voice when I was in this relationship and now I have my voice back. But she was a successful talkie actress. She just, like a lot of actresses from the first generation of film stars, like just had a nervous breakdown. I don't know. I think the reference to Clara Bow is probably about one of two things. It's either using her as a metaphor for like being silenced. Were you silent or were you silenced? Exactly. And a little bit of that is kind of alluded to in like songs like Bejeweled and Stuffed. Or conversely, it could be another historical song about just a woman that was too badass for her time, right? Which we got on Last American Dynasty, you know, even on folklore songs like Mad Woman. Like she's into like a crazy bitch and Clara Bow was a crazy bitch. She was institutionalized. She dealt with a lot of abuse and poverty, horrible shit. Horrible life. Uh, Yeah, uh, I think it probably will be the latter because Taylor Swift loves to, I'm not going to say make herself a victim, but like certainly that was the attitude during reputation of like, everybody hates me. It's like, who? (laughs) Yeah. Well, also Clara Bow, do you remember how in Hollywood Babylon, Kenneth Anger wrote that she fucked like an entire football team, which was later debunked? Yes, of course. Of course. But it's like she was, you know, a victim of sexism, of course, as well, which Taylor Swift also is and is clearly passionate about raising awareness about. So 
another possible and football. There you go. Sorry, I've gone way too deep on this. I'm just imagining Taylor Swift a few months ago was in Travis Kelsey's mansion in Kansas and she's just reading Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon being like, yep, this is it. <laughs> this album is coming back while she's still on tour, right? Because I look, she's yeah. touring the Eras tour until literally the end of this year. Until the end of time. Well, Chell, do you remember that um, Taylor Swift is also going to be making her directorial debut, which is something that got announced in December 2022. I know, and I completely forgot about it until this week. Matt Bellany a Puck, which is a subscription news site that I think we really probably should have a subscription for. They seem to have the best goss, but he said... In some article that's paywalled and I can't see, but uh, she will be focusing on her directorial debut, which she also wrote uh, when this tour ends. I'm curious about the her writing it thing. Yep, me too. I can't imagine her making a film that isn't at least partially autobiographical. Instead of like a famous singer, it's going to be a famous actress or something to that effect. I would think. I guess my concern, and not to be a hater, but the all-too-well 15-minute version, everybody loves. She directed it. I mean, to do an hour and a half of two hours of that, that's a lot of story to sustain. Yeah, that's what I'm most curious about, the story. And also, of course, who is going to be in this film? Blake Lively. Blake Lively has to be in this film. Yeah, I think sadly Blake Lively might be whoever the lead's mother is or something. Yeah. Using Hollywood logic. Shall we discuss other trailers and commercials we saw? Because I missed the first 20 or 30 minutes of the game because there was an open house going out in my house. <laughs> but did you see the Quiet Place trailer or the prequel trailer? P.S. Tat, this is not a silent film. It is just <laughs> called The Quiet Place. I missed that, but they had released it previously, which is something that they started doing three years ago that I cannot stand about the Super Bowl. Because for people like us, it's the only reason I watch. BMW, stop releasing your ads a week before with Christopher Walken. Also, it's becoming increasingly clear that these Super Bowl ads are really just about finding random clusterfuck pairings of celebrities at this point. Right. Like, I feel like people have stopped innovating in terms of concept, and they're just like, what's the most random group of famous people we can think of? Yeah, and there's not, there was nothing sad or, like, emotional or, like... Yeah, I don't think so. There's usually one that really pulls Jesus at your heart. washing feet. Okay. Well, that was kind of iconic. Okay, you will get this, because Paul and I said the same thing at the same time. Gregory Crutzen's photography yes. had to be on the mood board for that. Well, no, it was literally fed into AI. Like it was fed into mid-journey and then be like, can you take this style and then have Jesus washing everyone's feet? Take this gay man. Yeah. <laughs> this foot slut. <laughs> and this old priest and have him <laughs> wash his feet. That commercial made it more look like what he gets about us is that we all have a foot fetish. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't judge. Also, between this and did you see Mark Wahlberg's commercial for his prayer app? Hallow. No, but that sounds fun. I know, but also these Super Bowl ads cost $7 million. So if Jesus does exist, something tells me that he would rather each of these organizations spend $7 million, $14 million in total on, I don't know, feeding and finding sustainable housing for unhoused people, perhaps? One would think. 
He just gets us. <laughs> I did see not one, not two, not three, but four Timu ads, which did nothing to assuage my fears that they are a fake e-commerce company who is definitely going to sell my personal information to a data farm. No, I'm too scared to use it too. No, you've got to get on it. It's incredible. Well, what have you bought? I haven't, but there's lots <laughs> of things in my cart. <laughs> What's in your cart? You'll just have to wait and find out for that big box to arrive. I don't even want to know. Her Amazon problem is so oppressive because it's like we're running out of space. Well, Tad, that's actually why we invited you on the pod today. This is actually an intervention. (laughs) Sponsored by BetterHelp. So as Affleck trash, of course, I have to say that the best ad for me personally was that Dunkin' Donuts ad. It was nice to see Matt Damon in the mix. And what I liked about what Dunkin' Donuts did is they did release ads throughout the week but it wasn't this ad. It was all different things. Like, you know, Chell, they thought about this a lot. It was all a storyline leading up to the ad you would see in the Super Bowl. So there's like one of him with Charlie or Dixie D'Amelio learning the dance moves you see him do in that commercial. Oh, so this was like a whole story that I, I missed out on. And, but that's the best thing. You don't have to see them. Best ad. Just got to say. So should we talk about the halftime show? which I almost forgot about with all of this diva news, although I did enjoy it. I didn't really think that this halftime show was divisive until I went online and I saw how many people were saying that it was mid or relatively boring. And then in that moment, I realized I'm old and that I enjoyed Usher's show because it was nostalgic to a time called 2004 when we were all crunking to yeah at our junior high and high school dances. Okay, I have never crumped in my (laughs) life. Thank you very much. (laughs) Did you see that they fixed Alicia Keys' audio in every online version of it after it was performed? Well, it would have been rude not to. I know, but it was like a Mandela effect in real time where it's like, we all heard that, right? (laughs) Yeah. I did love my boo. That to me was a highlight. And also love in the club. So good. So good. Never misses. But also while he is iconic, I wouldn't have thought that Usher would be the caliber artist to headline the Super Bowl in 2024. I would think that he would be with like two other artists sharing this bill as we've seen so often in the past. Like that weird Bruno Mars Coldplay Beyonce Super Bowl. To me, I think those are the strongest shows, but I think, I mean, and maybe this is just Daily Mail hysterical discourse, but it was like, this is the worst halftime show. And I'm like, that's not true. That goes to Justin Timberlake when he did the Man in the Woods Super Bowl show. Yeah, that was really bad. I don't think it was bad. I enjoyed it. It was fun. I loved when he took his shirt off. I loved when Ludacris came out. Ludacris looked amazing also. Ludacris's fit, I think, was the most exciting fashion at the Super Bowl. Yeah, it was giving that Alexander McQueen collection where it was like the chess players, but it was like the floral uh, football outfits as well. Yeah, the uh, It's Only a Game collection. There we go. What do we think of these McQueen teaser images? I'm in. I'm excited. I think I'm more excited by the choice of models than I am by these photos. Well, I like how we're treating fashion now like the entertainment industry where it's like we have to tease. You know how they now do with trailers where it's like, here's the teaser Because in three days, the teaser trailer comes out for this movie. And we're also seeing this with Beyonce's album. They're dropping weird little visual snippets. Although, can we go back to having music videos? Remember when Beyonce made music videos? Maybe after that, like, Lion King film that she made, she was like, I'm going to dial back on this a little bit. Mark Romanek, Michelle Gondry, 
they got time. Even Jonathan Glazer, they got time to make music videos. Sadly, Hollywood isn't financing their film, so they have time to make some music videos again. I think people will be taking meetings with Jonathan Glazer after Zone of Interest. Shall we move on to some bad news? Sure, let's play the theme. (laughs) Bad news! (laughs) Only on every outfit. Another thing that we missed because we didn't record a pop culture episode last week was something that I'll call the TikTok cubbyhole straight girl drama. Yes. Which occurred right when you landed in Hawaii and I didn't want to, again, break up the good time you were having, but I, I, I had to text you and be like, you guys are seeing this, right? Of course. Tat was so gleeful when she explained this entire drama to me and showed me all the videos. We're talking about the TikTok cubbyhole drama. For those who don't live on TikTok like Tat and myself, do you want to get into what happened? Sure. So there's this TikTok influencer chick named Lexi Stout, who is a straight girl. She posted a TikTok about her first lesbian bar experience, which was not positive because... A lesbian friend invited her to the Cubby Hole, which is a legendary lesbian bar in New York. She then invited her straight male friend, and then her straight male friend got into an altercation with a lesbian in the bar who was like, who are you with? Why are you here? And it spiraled into a debate about should straight men be in lesbian bars? Was this an appropriate reaction from the lesbian, et cetera, et cetera? But really, the straight chick just ended up getting dragged. With the way that the internet is now, I don't know why people post stories like this. Because it was a real story of like, I'm obviously in the right, right? And of course, the way that the internet works now, chances are there was someone who witnessed this who will make their own video telling what actually happened. So the lesbian that got in the fight with the guy started a TikTok just to address this. And she said that she was trying to get to the bathroom and he was just blocking the space. See, the thing about the cubby hole, it is so small. It is a broom closet. So this man was like literally and figuratively taking up space. Then when she was like, you know, excuse me, got to move. He was a dick about it. And that's what prompted this altercation. This is perfectly a mesh in things we care about because I'm a straight girl. I've been to the cubby hole. I've been in the cubby hole with you. It's not a space for me. I should have deference to all of the lesbians around me. And also, I would never, never bring a straight guy or my boyfriend there. It's not a place for us. And that is okay. Not every place has to be for everybody. I think an acceptable circumstance for a straight guy being at the cubbyhole is if they're part of a large group of gay people that has come in as a group and are very aware of like where they are and how to behave. Yeah, or like an afternoon drink. If it was us, Lauren, Paul, Paul can come. I don't want a ton of straight guys in a lesbian bar, but you have to think about like what kind of guy am I bringing into this bar? If you are a straight guy, you need a lesbian to vouch for you, right? I I couldn't invite Paul, but yes, if you were like, "Hey, hey, this guy's with me. There's also another scenario where a straight guy could be in a gay bar, and that is if he is selling drugs. And that is just an act of service. That is an act of service. I agree. But the thing is, and the thing that straight people or even gay men might not realize is that lesbian bars are a very specific environment, and there are straight guys that come in to hit on women. I know it is counterintuitive, 
and absolutely crazy. And those kinds of guys usually always get thrown out, but it is something that does happen. And another version of that is horny straight couples that come to find a third or come to like make out in the corner because they think it's a sexually charged environment. And that's another kind (laughs) of person. It's disgusting and it happens all the time. And I have gotten into altercations with those couples at lesbian bars. I think we all have, no? Yeah, it's really, really common because people aren't really aware of where they are. The side discourse I loved was gay men stitching that video and being like, and while we're at it, I think we need to limit the amount of straight women in gay bars and clubs (laughs) as well. Oh, absolutely. Gay men have a different problem because while they're not being like sexualized by straight women in the way that some straight men sexualize women in lesbian bars. And by the way, when I say straight men, I mean cis men. I'm not talking about are trans brothers here. But gay men have to deal with bachelorette party culture, which is really fucked up in its own way. And that's why, I mean, it's really great that here in Los Angeles, bachelorette parties have been banned from the Abbey and most bars in West Hollywood. But that's not the case in every gay bar. I think the overarching issue is going into spaces and making it about yourself. Yeah, and it's especially insulting when it comes to lesbian bars because there are less than 30 that are currently operating in the United States. Whereas in the 80s, there was like 200 lesbian bars. So there's very few of them. And, you know, straight men can go to literally any bar and probably bro down with a group of other straight cis guys, you know, and lesbians, queer people don't really have that same privilege. I think what is still unanswered from all of this is who was the lesbian that invited this straight girl? <laughs> yeah, I she know. should be dragged a little bit too. <laughs> I know, I need her to start a TikTok as well and weigh in on this. Absolutely. She's like, she's actually not even my friend. Just <laughs> it's so funny that this happened because the last time I was in the cubby hole, I had the reverse situation. I was waiting for the bathroom and a gay guy was in front of me and he was like, you go first. This is your bar. And I was like, that is true chivalry. But would he ever get to use the bathroom? Because like, <laughs> he lets you go, then a woman comes up behind him, then he's like, oh shit, you go. But again, someone that's conscious of where they are and Straight people should be conscious of where they are if they're in a gay bar. So you're saying my bachelorette party isn't happening at the Abbey? (laughs) (laughs) This could have been a lot worse for this girl. Like, there could have been a very butch, very drunk lesbian in there that's like ready to pounce thank god leah delary was not in that bar (laughs) yeah this girl could have lost her life you know and ended up on tmz (laughs) (laughs) should we talk about feud capote and the swans or capote versus the swans i'll be honest this show is way darker than i was expecting it's not light and fluffy when the second episode ended with capote's closeted gay lover beating him mercilessly in front of molly ringwald's terrible vibe thanksgiving i was like i don't know if i can continue this (laughs) because i wasn't expecting the series to begin where it ends basically like you the first episode you learn about his relationship with his top swan babe paley played by naomi watts but at the end of the first episode he has written the expose about them that appears in esquire yeah the way that this show is structured is very bizarre and while i am enjoying watching it they are really stretching the material 
there's also, and we love this shit, but there is a little bit of a lack of context because they jump into his expose. The second episode is about the fallout of it. And then now the third episode is a fictional Maisel's documentary about his black and white ball. I get that biopics are always inherently historically inaccurate in some sense because it's like, we don't know if they said this then or whatever. Right. This show is straight up like revisionist history fanfic, which also makes me think they're stretching the material if they have to invent these more dramatic things. Anne Woodward did not crash the black and white ball. Like there are so many things in this show that are just not true. Yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of gossipy true shit happens. Like, I'm waiting if they're going to get into the fact that Truman Capote convinced Lee Radswell, played by Calista Flockhart. This is my favorite part of the show, by the way. That character. Oh, her. But what really happened between Truman Capote and Lee Radswell is Truman Capote convinced her that she should be an actress. And so she took his advice, went on Broadway. She was laughed out of the theater district. And I'm like, are we going to get into that? I think we probably will. It's just hard to say what they're going to cover because of the way that the show is structured and how it jumps back and forth throughout time. I guess I'm also surprised that these women, the Swans, were so surprised that he would publicly write all of their secrets in an article because... In his first meeting with Babe Paley, which, again, could be completely fictionalized, but he tells everyone about how Anne Woodward, played by Demi Moore, killed her husband. Like, he's constantly gossiping and talking shit about other people in front of you. Did you not think that he was doing the same to you? Yeah, he's very funny and very charismatic and someone that would be a great plus one for a gallery opening, but he's also very obviously the most toxic kind of person. Yes, and it's interesting to start so deep into all of their friendships, to basically start at the end of their friendship with him, because you're like, why would these bitches be around him? He seems awful. Yeah. But I do like the microaggressions of the uber wealthy in the 60s and 70s, like when, is it Babe Paley doesn't, get a car for him to go back to his apartment after their lunch. He's got to take the subway. I also have to say, I do really like Chloe Sevigny as CZ Guest. That, to me, is very good casting. It's weird, though, this show, because while I think all of these actresses are really amazing, I like that we have so many women of a certain age assembled. It's weird casting physically for a lot of them. How Diane Lane is Slim Keith is, like, (laughs) the most bizarre. It's the same with Naomi Watts and Babe Paley. I don't know who I would cast based on actors now, but like you would think it would be more of a Sigourney Weaver type person. She would be a good addition to the Ryan Murphy verse. Yeah. I was like, wow, I guess no Jessica Lange. And then I was like, oh no, she's an aberration (laughs) of his dead mother, which is why he hates Ann Woodward so much because she reminds him of his mom. Is it just me or like does every TV show have like some magical realism shit with like a dead parent, right? That's Six Feet Under, that's Dexter. It's shocking Michael C. Hall isn't in this. <laughs> he he should really be brought in, truly. But um, I did like episode three, the black and white ball. It was interesting. Although it's like if we're trying to make this look like a Maisel's brother film, why is it the crispest 
HD black and white shit I've ever seen. Can't we put some grain filter on this in iMovie? Like, am I crazy? I did think it was nice the way that when the ball started, they did mix archival footage with yes. the real footage that they sh- themselves shot. But you are correct. You can tell what's archival footage and what isn't because... The archival footage was actually shot on film. Yeah. It's just... it's. It's also weird because Gus Van Sant directed this episode, obviously, a legend, daddy, love him. He did get the Maisel's brother camera work really well. Yeah. That looked super legit. So I just kind of thought it was weird to drop the ball on like the most obvious thing to make it look like their work. We haven't talked about Tom Hollander's work as Truman Capote, which is great. Yeah, it is great. But where does he fit in the power ranking of Capotes? Because we have this Philip Seymour Hoffman Capote. And then who played him in the infamous, was that what it was called? Oh, yeah, Toby Jones as Truman Capote. Oh, and Sigourney Weaver played Babe Peely in this. It's probably Oh, shit, that's why I thought that. Okay, I need to rewatch that. I remember Capote more than Infamous. There you go. Wow, this is a really stacked cast. I've never seen this film. Toby Jones, Daniel Craig as Perry Smith, Gwyneth Paltrow as Kitty Dean, Isabella Rossellini as uh, Marella Angelini, Jeff Daniels is in this, Peter Bogdanovich. Also, this is a bit of a digression, but I think we have to address Chloe Seveny's very offensive comments about Los Angeles. The last place I would want to live is Los Angeles. Sorry. I feel like there's a lot of driving. I feel like it's very isolating. I find it very bright. I find the sunshine monotonous. I don't like how dry it is. I don't like how hard the water is. I don't is. like it. It's a town built around the industry that I work in. It makes me feel very self-conscious and uncomfortable in my own skin. I don't like the terrain. I don't like the vegetation. <laughs> She's fair to have her opinion about it, but in many ways, that's why we like Los Angeles. So can we just unpack this point by point, starting with it's a lot of driving. This is the number one complaint about Los Angeles, but it's like, I'm sorry, I'd rather be in an air-conditioned car listening to a podcast than on the subway or in a $300 Uber. Well, she also says that it's very isolating, which is, again, like, that's what I like about LA. Like, just being in your car at night, driving Mulholland, except for the places where it's closed now. I don't think the sunshine... I guess I have seasonal affective disorder, so I don't care about the sunshine being monotonous. And you know what? I didn't realize I even had it until I moved from New York to LA. Right. I was like, wow, I'm not like super clinically depressed from February to May. This is incredible. So I don't like how dry it is. I mean, that is solved by a a deep moisturizer. It's not dry. It's just not extremely humid. Like imagine being able to leave your house in the summer and your face stays on and your hair stays. And I must say, as someone who grew up here, thanks to climate change, less dry. We're a little more humid <laughs> these days, I must say. Um, this is my number one annoyance when actors talk about LA. I don't like how it's a town built around the industry I work in. She knows better. She knows that there are cool creatives in Los Angeles. Like, if you think that LA is only about the film industry, the film and TV industry, you're hanging out with the wrong people. Like, honestly, you're telling on yourself. Well, I think that when a lot of New York actors visit Los Angeles, it's they're either filming a movie here, so they have probably rented a house close-ish to wherever it's being filmed, and they're just with industry people because they're working, or they're here for some other reason, press and award show, and they're staying at Chateau Marmont or Sunset Tower, which... Yes, you can't fucking leave your room without seeing industry people. So maybe it's about like switching up the hotels 
So you're not like casually running into Tom Cruise. I would love to casually run into Tom Cruise. I never understood this about like you see celebrities everywhere at the Sunset Tower. I'm like, we've had lunch plenty of times and I've never seen a celebrity. We had a working lunch, guys, working on our live show. As we sat down, Kevin Costner comes around the corner. I was like, holy shit. And of course, I look to where he's walking to, and he's sitting down with Josh Safdie. What could they be working on? He looked hot, might I say, Kevin Costner. Like, as someone that rides hard for the bodyguard. Oh, (laughs) that's not where I thought you were going with that. Oh, really? I was just, like, majorly, like, majorly excited to see him. That's a movie star. That he is. And he took a, a selfie with someone at the end of the meal. Very nice classy guy. Anyway, the last thing is the the water is is very hard. And do what I do, get a soft water filter. Problem solved. The water in New York is not great either. And frankly, they shoot more movies and TV in New York these days than LA. So they're Chloe 70. <laughs> also, thanks Gavin Newsom. Why don't we have those amazing tax credits here in California? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to fashion. How are we blessed with two? I'm not going to say that they're both great. One is certainly better than the other, but like interesting magazine covers that we actually want to discuss. British Vogue dropped this insane cover that was a true spectacle with, I don't know, 10,000 women. It's like a fashion version of Where's Waldo? Because you're like, Oh shit, there's Victoria Beckham? I know. Karen Nelson's here too? Wow. Oprah's in the middle. Oprah and Jane Fonda get the prime position, I would say. Although I do think Kaya Gerber pulled a lot of focus. What's interesting about this shoot is that all of these women were actually in the same room. It was not photoshopped. However, they picked the best face from each girl. So it like, it wasn't real. Like they were all there, but this isn't a photo that was taken. I guess at a certain point, they could have just all not been there. Well, it's interesting too, because Steven Mizell did one of these big group covers for Vogue Italia in the 90s. And that did look like a real photo. Because it was. Because it was a real photo. For me, I either want realism or I want like, artifice on steroids. I don't want like artifice that's trying to look real. That's where it gets uncanny valley. Yeah. Do you want to discuss the Jamila Jamil jump scare? <laughs> yeah, there were some surprising choices. I feel like we could have gotten rid of like 20 of them. You know what I mean? Because it's like sometimes the more people there are, something is lost. Like I just watched the We Are the World documentary. Yeah. And it's like at a certain point, they become a choir. And it's like, actually, maybe you should have just picked the 20 most major people. That is true. Uh, Slight digression about that documentary. That was, you don't think about it, but it's like, yeah, someone had to figure out who has to have the solos. And of the solos, who's coming after, who's coming before and after, you know, Bob Dylan. And they were not all correct choices, by the way, as to who got the solos. I mean, truly wild. But so you watch the whole thing? Uh, I'm halfway through it. Did you get to the part where basically like Bob Dylan couldn't figure out how to sing his part? So Stevie Wonder literally sang his part in the style of Bob Dylan to figure out the arrangement. And then he was like, thanks, man. And like did it like that. Amazing. This cover is the we are the world of the fashion industry. And they all came together for Edward Edenfall's last issue of British Vogue. I don't know if you watched the behind the scene videos, but I thought it was interesting that Selma Hayek flew in, didn't stay at a hotel, was staying with Linda Evangelista, who has a son with 
Salma Hayek's now husband. I love this modern family. I know. I thought that was so cute. One thing, though, I do think is interesting about this is that it's not like it doesn't skew British. It feels like it's mostly Americans. Yes. You know what I mean? And it's just that's a departure from how British Vogue has approached these kind of covers in the past. Like I remember there was one from the early 2000s that was like all of the important British models of the time. So it's like Naomi, Kate, Stella Tennant, and they're all in like these crazy deconstructed like Union Jack outfits and shit. I would say, do you want to say the most surprising person on the cover? Because for me, it's Selma Blair. I'm like, how do they know each other? I know. And it, of course, coincided with her cancellation for her blatant Islamophobia. But with that many people on the cover, someone was bound to be canceled. Glad I yelled at her in the Pache parking lot. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, Tad got into a traffic altercation with Selma Blair, who um, was driving quite recklessly, I will say. <laughs> Shall we talk about the American Vogue cover? That's a breath of fresh air. Who saw that coming? Yeah, I guess we've entered the stage of print magazines dying that even Anna Wintour is like, fuck it, let's put a designer on the cover. Yeah, and why not, frankly? No one deserves it more than Musha Prada. Also, we should mention that the current exhibition at the Met at the Costume Institute is this women dressing women show which is all about female designers so it makes sense that they would want to do a cover that ties in with that. My favorite quote from this article is when she says I want culture to be attractive and I feel like that's my new mantra like if I go into meetings and they ask what my worldview is I think it's that. She's such a legend it's nice to see a photo that looks like natural and normal It's nice to see a photo that's taken outdoors. Yeah, and I liked using Gigi Hadid as just doing a in-studio editorial of all the Prada and Mew Mew looks over the years. Yeah, that was great. Also, as we're recording this, the dress code for the 2024 Met Gala has dropped. Yeah, can you explain this a little bit? Tad, another stylist, best of luck decoding what this is. So there are two things for the uninitiated. Now, there is the Met Gala theme for the show itself, which this year is Sleeping Beauty's Reawakening Fashion. And then there is a dress code for the red carpet, which is not um, black tie or cocktail attire. It's the Garden of Time. And the Garden of Time is the name of a, is it a short story or a? It's a short story by J.G. Ballard, which I love in this Vogue article. They're like, the author is perhaps most known for his novel, The Empire of the Sun, which was adapted into a film by Steven Spielberg. It's like, nah, J.G. Ballard is the one that wrote the erotic car crash novel turned Cronenberg film crash. (laughs) Work. Yeah, and it's a short story about a count and a countess who live in this utopia beauty and they have these crystalline flowers and the villagers hate them so they have to destroy the flowers and a mob comes in. And then like to keep the mob at bay, they have to pluck a flower from the garden and that flower in doing that reverses time. time. So eventually they just like end up plucking the entire garden and then the mob just like comes for them anyway. It seems very dystopian. Which is his vibe. But I was just reading all of that, imagining like Bad Bunny stylist being that meme that's like, not going to read all of that. Like, I'm sorry for your loss or congratulations. Like, I'm going to put him in a crystal suit. I <laughs> Well, Bad Bunny kind of dressed on theme last year when he did that floral train. Yeah, there's a lot going on because the whole thing about the Met Gala exhibition is that these are 
very old clothing from the archive that can't even be worn anymore. And I worry that everyone is going to look at the red carpet theme and be like, garden party, got it. But I think it's also more about how like a flower is like something that just is beautiful and then it rots and dies. It like symbolizes the passage of time, birth, death. But yeah, I think a lot of people will just wear flowers. I hope someone wears those like Simone Rocha dresses that had the roses in them from last season. Right. And one of the looks in this article they suggest, which, you know, no one's going to wear, unfortunately, is um, one of Simone Rocha's looks for the Jean-Paul Gaultier couture show as well. (laughs) Chat's not saying anything. Only time, pun intended, (laughs) will tell (laughs) what people will wear on the red carpet. Well, we could also get some literal clock moments. Oh, I'm so worried. Didn't like Margiela make like a dress out of old watches or something? Like I'm into that. Well, I hope someone wears a Flavor Flav clock, just like a giant <laughs> clock accessory. Same. Uh, we also missed New York Fashion Week. Well, we didn't miss it. It literally ended yesterday. So it's not as if we're like painfully late to the party. But before we get into that, can we talk about Zach Posen's appointment at The Gap? Oh my God, you're right. In what I'll call sure why not news, Zach Zach Posen was appointed uh, as the creative director of The Gap, which is quite the 180 from pinning all of their hopes and dreams on Kanye West just two years ago. Because, you know, if there's one thing I associate with Zach Posen, it's jeans and t-shirts. Chell, they will literally do anything but hire a former designer from Ralph Lauren, Buck Mason, J. Crew, got even LA Apparel to make Gap what it was in the 90s. It's not that complicated. Yeah, I think personally they should find someone from Yeezy or from Uniqlo. And it, I don't think it needs to be a famous person. Like, I don't see any advantage to the Gap having a big name known creative director especially a creative director that's known for evening wear primarily like it doesn't make sense it's i feel the same way about supreme it's like they don't need to have a creative director they are the brand yeah they could literally just re-release collections from the past and that's the thing if this is supposed to draw in fashion people i don't think it'll work because if they want to draw in fashion people they just need to make the perfect oversized pair of khakis that looks like it could be the row or something and like a nice cut ribbed tank top or something it's really not that deep that's another thing get a a road designer that's what hermes did with their women's ready to wear yeah i feel like they should just hire someone not famous and also work on you know leading in the area of advertising again because they used to be at the forefront of ads creatively. And now I can't even, I'm sure I see Gap ads all the time, but like can't think of one. Oh yeah, we went down a rabbit hole the other week because we were talking about Michel Gondry's music videos. The Let Forever Be video and how he then had to basically turn it into a Gap holiday ad where people were sledding and shit. Make Gap that again. More swing dancing, more Michel Gondry, less of whatever this is. I'll even take whatever that era was right when Sex in the City ended where Sarah Jessica Parker was in an ad with Lenny Kravitz. Like, I'll even take that era. No, I do not want tweed rosettes. That's what I don't want from The Gap, <laughs> actually. But I will say, I have been shopping at The Gap lately. Yeah, we found some good stuff. Both of us have gotten a lot of clothes from The Gap lately. Also, if you have a dog, The Gap makes the best hoodies for dogs that are like the old 90s Gap hoodie. 
Is it the gap or gap? Do I just say the gap because of those ads that were like fall into the gap? Mind the gap. Sorry. Mind. <laughs> I'm not I'm not laughing at you. I was just thinking of the scene from the social network where Justin Timberlake is Sean Parker, because it was originally the Facebook, and he's just like, drop the the. Oh yeah, it's literally just gap. Yeah. <laughs> you sound like grandpa. You sound Joe. like a fucking idiot. I know. I still call it Amazon.com too. That's my other problem. It makes you me said, sound like a... T, you've got another Amazon.com package. I mean, it is from Amazon.com. Yeah, the .com's still there, bitch. And my hoodie is from The Gap. I call it The Gap. I choose to call it The Gap. I'm not changing my ways. I'm going to call it The Gap. <laughs> like Megan the <V>. Stallion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. I like that. On to New York Fashion Week. Mixed bag as always, but some good shows. And thankfully, this year was a season where Marc Jacobs did show. And this is what I will call his Polly Pocket collection. Right. Everyone, of course, was like, oh, we're in Barbie mania. But I agree with you. It is giving more Polly Pocket, which I really hope Lena Dunham is making that movie. But has any other runway show done so much with such little production design? They did have a giant pair of folding chairs. And- no, but that's what I'm saying though. Like it's not on Vogue runway. I saw the video on YouTube and I'm like, okay, there's like office chairs. Cause the, when it's first shown, it's out of context. And then once the models started walking in and, and they were teeny tiny and made you realize that the office chairs and table was gigantic. I was like, yes. It was very cool. They all looked like sad little Blythe dolls with bouffant hairdos. Like there was a lot of 60s references in this collection, the Supremes, all that. But like, I mean, as always, it was like a clusterfuck of references. Because on the other hand, we have these references to more avant-garde designers like Home de Garçon, like Margiela, etc. But, you know, as always, he somehow finds a way to make all of this work together and still look like Marc Jacobs. And he also referenced a lot of his own archives, like that giant version of like whatever that it bag was from the 2000s with the little buckle closures. Yeah. And I feel like the way that people freaked out about the John Galliano collection, I feel like Marc Jacobs is similar in taking the idea of the collection through every element down to, did you notice in the video the way that the model's arms were placed? Like they had the opposable elbows. Mm-hmm. Very, very good. Yeah, it was awkward timing with that Marcella show in New York Fashion Week because that is the type of show that is going to make most creative directors look like children playing in sandboxes, but Marc Jacobs does not fall into that category. And also it's the 40th anniversary of the brand, which is crazy. I feel old. Other favorite collection... Probably Willie Chavaria. Always. He's adding a lot to New York Fashion Week. And I think it's really nice to see clothes that are cool, but not hipstery, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it absolutely makes sense. I also like that he's, now that he's defined his sort of look, that he's mixing in other references, like the sweaters that were in this collection. Yeah, the veils and stuff. It's, yeah, it's all very cool. Kat, you're wearing Willie now. Yes, I am. We need some cool designers at New York Fashion Week if we're going to keep this going. And I think that they're very lucky to have him. And I hope that they don't lose him to Paris, as is the case with so many other New York brands. Um, what else? I am surprised that you had Altazara on our outline. I mean, bitch me too. <laughs> Who would have thought? Where did this come from? Actually, where? Like, it's fully crazy. I really liked that show. It was very 
80s. It was referencing a lot of American designers from the 80s. And I don't know. I just thought the clothes were really appealing. Like the Perot collars were major. Yeah, it was giving, sorry to make everything a movie reference, but like what Kim Basinger's character of Vicki Vale would wear in like Tim Burton's Batman, like that era of the 80s. Also, this is stuff that like the Swan women were wearing in the 80s also. Like, it's very, like, woman of leisure. Ralph Lauren, you know, equestrian vibes. But good for him. Yeah. And it was to celebrate the 15th anniversary of his brand. Well, also, they used that style of runway photography that does look like it's from the 80s. That, like, the row has been using in their Vogue runway pictures where it's, like, they're not shot, where the outfits aren't shot frontally. They look like they're taken by photographers that are placed in different parts of the the room yeah and it's either a filter they're putting on digital imagery or they are shooting on film other noteworthy things our friend lauren kramer performed at Eck house lotta that was amazing that was also amazing because i didn't know it was happening i was just like oh shit <laughs> he looks great i know i was watching evan ross katz's stories from him being at the show and i was like this sounds very familiar, what I'm hearing in the background. <laughs> yeah, he did a great job. That was major. I also enjoyed Anna Sui's show at the Strand, which is a cool venue. I don't know if anyone's ever shown there before. I can't really think of it. I don't think so. Is this up in the third floor where we did our book event there? I think it's probably the second floor where the coffee table books are. I honestly don't know. I'm sure they had to reconfigure things. Very cool. And I feel like more people should be looking to Anna Sui just because she owns her own brand. She's still doing the same look. She's created this look that is so highly specific. She has her fan base. She doesn't care about what's popular. She owns the company. She's not working for a major luxury house. She's not doing like collabs all the fucking time. It's just cool. Yes. I mean, more designers should be like this. But as we learned with the puppets and puppets, profile in the New York Times and also that depressing cut article. Very <laughs> difficult to be an independent designer. May yeah. I say impossible to be an independent designer today? I don't know if it's impossible, but I thought the Puppets and Puppets article was really interesting. It was written by Jessica Testa, who wrote a similar profile of Elena Velez, another New York designer last year. And these articles both had a very similar thesis, which is, yes, what you said, being a young designer in New York sucks. It's not financially sustainable. And I do think it's a good thing that these designers are being transparent about the fact that their businesses are struggling because historically that's been a big no-no, right? And when you think about it, Fashion Week is all about appearances and like the appearances of success. So people want to buy your shit. And by people, I mean buyers it's always been difficult to be an independent designer but there's something about this era that we're in this late stage capitalist era where it, like it truly is impossible and what i thought was interesting about the cut article certainly is there's a lack of transparency about finances and everyone was like this is what it costs to put on a show this is what it costs to even get patterns and i think i mean the same thing is going on in in the movie industry as well like I think what both articles highlight is what has eroded that used to be the saving grace of younger designers, 
was that Barney's would put in a big order or Nordstrom, and that doesn't exist anymore. Right. Well, there are online retailers. There's Netta Porter, there's Essence, there's sure. Matches, whatever. Also, I don't think it's just a New York thing. Like, Delara Findakulu was very transparent last yeah. season that she wasn't staging a show because she didn't have the money to do so. But I think what's not being mentioned in this conversation is that maybe these designers aren't doing well financially because they don't make commercial clothing. Puppets and Puppets is a little different because they do have an it bag. They have that cookie bag yes, that people buy and that's why they are continuing as an accessories label. But avant-garde clothing only speaks to a very small group of consumers and even within that group, you have to convince them like, oh, should I buy this $2,000 puppets and puppets dress instead of something from Come to Garçon or Rick Owens or something? And I think that's a very hard ask. I know there's all this discussion about eat the rich, but I feel like what is missing is, going back to Capote and the Swans, is, is rich women of a different era used to be patrons of the arts. Like there's no one just being a patron of these younger designers. And that's what we need in the billionaire class. Yeah, I don't know. I just think, I think it's always been hard for people that make this kind of clothing to succeed financially. A few people have, mostly Belgians, Japanese designers. But I do think that people that want to go into fashion design, particularly people that not only want to go into fashion design, but they want to have their own label, should be aware of how expensive it is to do that. And also, I looked on Glassdoor because I wanted to know, like, how much does a fashion designer make in the United States? And you thought Glassdoor was the best way to find this out? Well, yeah, that's literally what that website is made for. And it says most fashion designers in the United States make between sixty-four dollars and $113,000 a year, which... I have to assume that most of these jobs are in major cities, right? New York, LA, San Francisco, whatever. No one's balling out on a salary like that. Certainly not. Even something as safe as like Todd Snyder, he was recently on the Cutting Room Floor podcast and he was like, it takes a lot of money to start a brand. And when he got into the numbers, because he was the menswear designer at J. Crew when they went public. So he's like, I had $2 million in savings and I basically blew through that. And then he was like, we basically weren't profitable until uh, $20 million had been sunk in the brand. Yeah, you sent me that. And he said, basically, it's like once you've spent $20 million and you make it back, that's the point when things become profitable. And you could start paying yourself that sixty to 100000 It's truly crazy. So, yeah. Don't want to discourage anyone from being a fashion designer, but Jesus Christ. It's hard out there. On to Kardashians. Kardashaholics Anonymous. This is a case for the FBI. You're just a witch, and I hate you. <laughs> Guys, we're going to talk about Kanye, so if you don't like that, you can just dip out of the podcast right now. And no, I don't really care about his new album. What I do care about is the drama around this bootleg Alexander McQueen mask. Kanye posted on Instagram a photo of him wearing a mask, like a black mask, like a hamburglar mask <laughs> sorry i don't know why that's my reference <laughs> with a crucifix on it which is a famous piece from alexander mcqueen's dante collection from 1996 and i guess everyone just made the assumption that it was mcqueen and then i saw byron-esque vintage which is a great vintage dealer posted a story basically calling out kanye and his team saying that 
they had contacted them to inquire about purchasing this mask. They actually sourced one from this guy named Simon Hostin who made the mask for McQueen to begin with. They sent photos of it to the team, you know, told them how much it cost. And then I guess they gave them a counter offer of like significantly less money than it was worth. So they didn't buy it. And then they just, I guess, copied it based on the photos that were sent. Although it, if you look at it, it's like they are completely different masks. Like the Jesus looks very different. For sure. And I do wonder if the inspiration for Ye, which I assume is, was the- Are we calling him Ye now? Sorry, Come Kanye. On. For Alexander McQueen is the Joel Peter Wicken uh, photo portrait of Joel from 1984, which is what Kanye's mask looked. The Jesus placement is a little more akin to that. Anyway, it sucks. I hated seeing it. Well, also, okay, but then Byron S. Vintage deleted the three posts about this. So I wonder what happened with that. You know, did they get some pushback for calling them out? Because all of this information that we have is solely from those posts. So I'm just curious what the T is. If anyone knows, let me know. But this is the sort of niche fashion drama that I live for. Yeah. You know? This is why, like, I refresh Instagram hoping to find something like this. I mean, the only thing that I care about with this new Kanye album is Paul was listening to it and we were like going through the tracks and I forget which track it is, but I go, is that Jay Muse of Jay and Silent Bob? What from Jay and Silent Bob did It starts they? the song where he's like, you know, I thought we were in love. Do you think men like us fall out of the sky? And that's what, what starts the song. And I'm like, that is, I believe, the sidekick to Silent Bob J. Muse. And yeah. It's like, oh, okay, I did hear that song, but it's been a really long time since I've seen Dogma, so. See, your version of refreshing Instagram is like, I'm refreshing YouTube, because I'm like, of course Kevin Smith is going to talk about this. And I'm waiting for his thoughts because obviously... I can't imagine that he'll be psyched. No, because I mean, <laughs> like, I imagine like sampling songs. If you sample dialogue from a, a film that you don't own the rights to, that you have to pay someone something. One would think. In other Kardashian news, the Kardashians went to the Super Bowl. And I guess looked bored. That seemed to be the story about them. Well, did the cameras ever even cut to them? Like, I don't think I saw them. That would be too much pressure for me being a famous person at a game because, like, you can't even, I think of the, the Curb Your Enthusiasm, or no, it's the Seinfeld thing where uh, someone thinks that Jerry's picking his nose, but he's like, no, it was a flick. It wasn't a pick. <laughs> you just can't do anything. You don't know no. when you're when you're being filmed. I don't know if you saw that clip of Leonardo DiCaprio, who must have a sixth sense of when he's being filmed because he just has his cap down and he's not, like, he knows the camera's on him. Yeah. Compared to Jeff Goldblum, who didn't know the camera was on him. Someone in the suite tells him he puts on his glasses to see himself and then he just gets excited and waves, which is the energy one should have when they're at the Super Bowl and on the Jumbotron. I fucking love him. Also, Chris was in an Oreos commercial. I didn't really understand the story of that commercial. I didn't either. I have no <laughs> idea what the fuck was going on. They're trying to make fetch happen, right? They're like, they're trying to make twisting an Oreo a thing and a thing to like be a tiebreaker because I guess whatever <laughs> side of the Oreo that has the frosting on is like a heads or tails of sorts. But you can tell which one has the frosting on And it. they always 
break when you twist them. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily come out where the cream is like perfectly intact. Right. On and one the, side. I mean, I did love seeing Chris in her 2007 era hair, but the idea was like it's Chris in 2007 deciding if they should do a reality show. Here's the other thing that doesn't make sense about this. It's not like one person has their hand on the other side of an Oreo and she has one like it's flipping a coin. She just twists the Oreo herself and is like, well, I guess we're doing the reality show. It's like, how? What was the determined factor? (laughs) I can't believe I'm like this annoyed about an ad a week ago. (laughs) No, it's true. And that's a problem for me with Super Bowl commercials is that I legitimately don't understand half of them. (laughs) Maybe that's why I liked the Jesus one. Cause I'm like, oh, I get this, <laughs> you know? Jesus was a foot fetishist. <laughs> I, I pick it up what you're putting down. He does get us. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a weird one. Um, but I don't think Chris Jenner was actually there. I think that was just a Kendall and um, Kim situation. And Chloe. And Chloe. They were having a girls weekend. And Kim's rumored... New boyfriend, Odell Beckham Jr., wide receiver for the Baltimore Ravens. Look at you. Do you have that written down? Yeah, obviously. I don't know who the fuck this is. Like, the only thing I know about him is that I thought he had dated Chloe, but that's kind of fake news because the only thing that really happened is that in 2016, they went to a party together and there's like a photo, like a grainy photo of her, like half like sitting or leaning against him it looks like flirty but it's not like they like fully dated as we've learned with courtney travis and kim at this point if they stay single enough they are gonna start just fucking each other's ex-boyfriends yeah well i hope that's not the case for chloe's sake just because that's awkward and it's weird enough that courtney has this weird link to kim via travis that's true. Seeing that Chloe was with them during the whole weekend, I think she's fine with it. If they did hook up, and they probably didn't. Anyway, I didn't realize there was such an age difference between Odell Beckham Jr. and Kim Kardashian. There's like a 12-year age difference. He's younger? Yeah. He's like 28, 29. What a cradle robber. Get it, Kim. All right. It's the end of the show, which means we have to promote our fucking tour, especially what were the dates that we really have to promote, according to the tour guy? Guys, you wanted us to come to St. Louis and Nashville. We are... It's not going great, (laughs) so... Please don't make us have to cancel this show. We will be in St. Louis, April 26th. We will be in Nashville, April 27th. Chicago... Guys, are you thinking of coming? You should. We'll be there April 25th. And we've also got Boston, April 18th. Our late show in New York City. It is 420. It is going to be insane. Yes, it does start at 10, 15 p.m., but don't worry about it. Just just come. Yeah, have dinner before and then come. And it'll be more fun because you two will be drunk by then. Maybe maybe in the last quarter <laughs> of the 10 p.m. show we'll be drunk, but we'll have to keep it together, unfortunately, for the majority of the show. Yeah. We will be in Washington, D.C. on my birthday, April 21st. What is Chelsea going to do for me? Yeah, I have to figure oh, that out. <laughs> yeah, you can help me strategize. I will. That, yeah. We will be in Philadelphia April 22nd and Pittsburgh April 23rd. Please come. Because if you don't, then we're just not going to tour again. <laughs> I hate to I hate to be like this. It's but. our first and last tour. 
<laughs> Actually, that sounds kind of iconic. <laughs> Maybe this should just be our farewell tour. Like Elton John, who like has been doing farewell tours for my entire life. That's true. Ironically, it's our first tour. That's our last tour that we don't stop touring. Wait, I'm confused. <laughs> it's this our- is, I'm confused. This is just like the Oreo Super Bowl commercial again. All right, guys, uh, we're going to say goodbye so that I can explain this to Chelsea and we'll see you next week. Thank you to our special guest, Tat. I didn't say much, but I thought I would just. <laughs> well, you're it, quiet as a church mouse. Leave it to the professor. Is that the expression? Yes, yes, it is. What the fuck is a church mouse? Like a mouse in a church? Yes. It's so quiet, you can't even hear it. All right, guys. Until next week. Bye. 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 Aww.